0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Fiona Pathiraja, the health tech VC. On this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with ambitious startups, outstanding investors, and visionary leaders in health tech. This week's guest is Dr. Saira Gaffal, who's a consultant respiratory physician and lead for digital health at Imperial College London's Institute for Global Health Innovation, where she spearheaded the college's collaboration for healthcare cybersecurity. Saira also leads work on evidence generation for digital health, the value of healthcare data and AI and machine learning for health in low and middle income countries. Saira has previously been a Harkness Fellow in Healthcare Policy in New York and has also worked at NHS England for Professor Sir Bruce Keogh. She co-founded Sima, which is a mental health startup providing online access to psychologists and talking therapies. On our podcast, Saira discusses her career progression from frontline clinician to policy expert, and our wide-ranging discussion covers topics from the 2017 cyber attack on the NHS to the value of NHS data to the key questions that startups in the health tech space should be thinking about before their proof-of-concept stage. Saira shares her tips for managing a portfolio career and also gives tips for publishing research carried out in the digital health sector. Saira, welcome to the Health Tech VC podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. I know you've had this really interesting career path. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about how you went from medical training to this really interesting role at Imperial?
1: If you asked me 15 years ago uh, what I'd be doing at this point in time, I don't think I would have ever imagined this. So I went through the traditional path of um, junior doctor training then higher specialty training and did respiratory medicine but during my higher training I was always quite interested in policy and politics and we had a really great opportunity up in Sheffield where I was doing um, my rest training and that was in quality improvement fellowship so I wasn't 100% sure if I wanted to do quality improvement but it gave me more of an opportunity to have some headspace think about what I really wanted to do and actually during that year I had the opportunity to spend two months in Switzerland um, and it was quite interesting to see another healthcare system. I also did the value based healthcare course in um, the US, and again, that was nice to see something else different. And then started uh, a master's in health policy at Imperial. So that kind of was a catalyst of actually, medicine is not the kind of thing that I want to do full-time and there's lots of different other avenues to explore and then ended up applying for the FMLM fellowships um, and ended up working at NHS England. Um, So that was a fab opportunity and I think it just opened my eyes up to how the health system actually runs in the UK. So I think at junior doctor level it was quite difficult to put all the pieces together. It was brilliant Um, and actually just explored lots of different opportunities and at that point I worked for the innovation team but also worked for the new care models team as well, mm. and decided that this is, you know, a great opportunity to explore lots more digital stuff going on at that point, and basically took up every opportunity there was there. Um, so I went back to my final year of medical training um, and was back up in Sheffield for the year. And at that point, I applied for another fellowship. So I was third. <laughs> <laughs> fellowship addiction. <laughs> exactly. I think I went from like local, national, and then international was the next. And I applied to the Fellowships and their policy fellowships and um, based in the US. And again, another amazing experience. You, you've applied with a project. And the project title was looking at digital health technologies, patient-facing ones, and what we can learn from other non-healthcare industries. Mm -hmm. Um, So spent the year in New York, um, and it was the perfect antidote to like 12 years of medical training and finishing off my medical reg training. So just the experience itself was fantastic. But actually exploring the health tech scene, went to Silicon Valley, traveled around the States, and met with all the kind of big tech companies. And actually having, again, the headspace to really explore what you want to do, what you want to think about, and having people support you doing that. So that kind of opened my eyes up to lots of different ideas. And then at the end of that year, came back to the UK and took up the job at Imperial as a leader of digital health at Institute of Global Health Innovation. At that point, also was working with my sister in creating an idea of a startup. She is a clinical psychologist, and we came up with the idea of a mental health startups delivering online therapy, and we ended up working on that in the background as well. And this was alongside doing outpatient clinics as a spiritual consultant at St. Mary's as well. So it's been a very busy couple of years.
0: Wow, so you're a real multitasker. And one of the things that I was very impressed with is that you're still managing to have a you know, a clinical role as a consultant, so I'd be interested to see how you manage those two different roles, and you know how do you go from being a you know physician to then having this policy role all in the same week?
1: Um, I think it is very hard to juggle both roles. So at first, I was thinking I want to do the inpatient and outpatient bit, but that I find it very very difficult to do. The outpatient stuff was easier to manage in terms of when your regular clinics are, and you can manage your time much better. I think more than anything, I think it was support I had both from um, Ara Arzi who's my boss at Imperial, but also our clinical director for respiratory, who's absolutely brilliant as well. So I think without either of them um, just would not have been able to do it. And I think having a bit of flexibility as well to manage both. Um, but then also being prepared to offer that flexibility as well. So I think that has been certainly key. There have been kind of moments when you think, God, it's quite difficult to do everything and making sure you're keeping up to date with the medical side as well. Yeah. But I think it's actually really nice to be able to do both. And a lot of the stuff that you kind of pick up in your clinical role, you can actually bring back into the policy role and vice versa as well. And I think that's been super helpful.
0: And you took, so is it three years out of medicine to do all this policy stuff?
1: Yes, so it was three years in total within my higher training and one year um, uh, post-CCT.
0: And did you find that a challenge when you came back or was it stuck to water? As soon as you're back, you're like, haven't forgotten anything. Yeah, I think
1: it's always a bit scary coming back or you can feel quite nervous coming back. And I think each time what I just very quickly learned was if you're unsure of anything, not to think... I need to be able to like know everything or do everything myself, but just can kind of put your hands up and say, actually, um, I'm not hundred percent sure. And even if it's like the silliest question that you think um, it might be, or you're embarrassed asking it, just ask. Um, and it's so much
0: better. So to talk a little bit about this, Institute at Imperial. I think it's incredible that they have this set up where they feel digital health is so important and that they have a lead for it. So, why did they set it up? What's the motivation behind it? A couple of years before I started,
1: the Institute had got a grant uh, that helped really catalyse the work that was happening, and it was looking a lot at electronic health records and the patient uh, physician interface. When I joined the Institute, I was given the challenge of restructuring what our strategy was um, and asked to see what else we could do um, to grow uh, the digital health input from the Institute, which was quite daunting. um, But at the same time, um, it was a great opportunity to just really put my stamp on it, but really take the best of what the Institute had to offer. So over the past three years, what we've developed three main strands to the strategy, one is looking at evidence generation in digital health. And that's working with different um, companies, be it startups or, you know, multinational companies to see what kind of evidence is needed to show that their digital health technology works. We also work um, in low and middle income countries um, and we're doing some AI and machine learning work using large data sets, mainly HIV um, and some TB and working with Nigeria and South Africa, who we're kind of exploring opportunities with at the moment and seeing how um, we can use those data sets and apply machine learning techniques to those for better outcomes or see if there's anything that we can do to improve healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, then we do lots of pure policy work. And one of the big things that we're looking at is the value of the NHS data set. And again, we'll be working with academia, policymakers, government frontline organisations and also commercial companies to see actually how can we use NHS data in a much broader way and working with commercial companies with that as well. Um, And one of our kind of flagship programs has been cybersecurity in healthcare, and we've set up the first academic centre for cybersecurity in healthcare, which has been super interesting because we've got a very strong cyber presence at Imperial, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, and our institute brings health and policy background to it.
0: So it must be a big multidisciplinary group of people, then, because you're talking about you know health economics, policy, clinicians, low and middle income country work. So what kinds of people work at this institute?
1: Yeah, that's one of the the best bits about working at the Institute is the the different groups of people. So we've got clinicians, we've got people who've come from a consulting background, we've got designers who specialise in healthcare, economists, pure academics. We've got a whole range of different people who work there. And I think that makes it all the more interesting and people bring different skill sets to different projects. It's great. It's really interesting having lots of different conversations and then actually pulling something together um, with all the different kind of specialties um, and disciplines coming together for a better outcome at the end
0: the website talks a lot about the risks of digital health which as an investor I'm looking for the opportunity and I'm always very excited and we can change the world with technology and with health tech but of course there are real risks to deploying these things and could you talk a little bit about that and and how the institute's working around these things
1: so one of the big things is always first and foremost we're one of the kind of um, national patient safety centers and I think both as part of that center and also as a clinician myself Patient safety is first and foremost, so if you're deploying a technology, you need to make sure that there is evidence to show that it works. And this is a huge issue in healthcare technologies or in the kind of digital health landscape, is that there's lots of amazing apps out there. There's lots of different technologies out there, but in terms of generating evidence, um, it's very, very difficult to show that something works, it's safe, it's effective. And actually, it's going to really benefit the end user. We've got the kind of FDA guidance, we've got nice guidance within that, but also it's how do you show that it does um, produce the outputs that either kind of the company claims that it can, but also how useful it is for patients. And I think that's part of the landscape that we are missing, and it is very difficult to kind of generate that evidence because it's a bit of the chicken and egg. So you go to the NHS to say we've got this great technology that would really benefit patients or really benefit healthcare professionals why don't you use it in practice? And the first question is, what's the evidence to show that it works? (laughs) And you say, why don't we work with you to show that it works? But then it's, no, we can't do that until we've got evidence. So um, you need to generate that evidence, but it's how do you do it? The kind of innovation incubators set up by the NHS England, but also the Academic Health Sciences Network as well to try and have some of those collaborations with our NHS organisations. But it's just trying to... uh, make that a bit smoother so that it is easier to bring these into practice, but obviously to generate that evidence as well. So I think it is quite difficult to do, yeah. and that's where we're developing the evidence generation side of things to show what other solutions or what other methodologies can you use to generate that evidence um, in a kind of real world way
0: i was interested in your work around cybersecurity and for those of people who're listening who may may not know about the nhs for example there was a big hack on the nhs in 2017 and i remember that i was in hospital then working as a, a radiologist and even though our hospital wasn't affected, they stopped all incoming email or internet was disabled. It was complete chaos at the time. And I was interested to read, uh, as part of your work, that you say it cost the NHS around £6 million and over 13,000 outpatient appointments were cancelled. So it'd be great to hear a bit about this work and what that means for the NHS.
1: In terms of cybersecurity, we know that everything pretty much crossed the NHS and most other health services globally are turning towards digital to help with delivering services. But at the same time, cybersecurity is just not completely caught up to that. And cybersecurity has been much more of an integral part of um, the delivery of other critical sectors. If you look at finance, transportation, nuclear, energy, all of those um, healthcare has always lagged behind. And I think the 2017 WannaCry attack was certainly a big shake-up for healthcare, and especially the NHS, and really to look much more closely at what was going on. Um, and certainly since then, there's been a lot more capital investment um, from the Department of Health to shore up cybersecurity in the NHS. One of the earlier white papers that we did was looking at the state of cybersecurity across the NHS and how things have changed since pre WannaCry to what it is at current levels. And then we did an impact analysis using hospital episode statistics data and to see what the impact was on all the healthcare organisations that were affected there was infected ones and then there was those hospitals that were affected and um, that thought there might be a problem and like you were saying that kind of all email computers everything were switched off yeah. and it was really to try and understand the patient safety impact again so one of the things that we've got to remember is that any cyber threat or any cyber attack is actually an attack on patient safety if you can access electronic health records, if you can look at someone's um, radiology, if you can't look at their um, blood results or anything, that's actually a delay in patient care, which could have very severe consequences. And some hospitals actually had to turn away patients as well, five um, accident emergency departments turned them away. So in terms of the number of outpatient clinics, it was outpatient clinics, surgeries that were cancelled, any um, and departments that were closed and the number of admissions, to, elective admissions to hospitals, massively decreased as well. Um, and this was over a period of a week um, before things started coming back up. And if you think about that, the attack was stopped within 24 hours and that was a disruption to the NHS in less than 24 hours. That's the impact that it's had. The cost estimate that we had was... Um, that was a very basic one because a lot of detail was not collected so that was a very empirical um, number that we put in it and that was just um, based on bed days as opposed to what other people had to be brought in to
0: help. I think it's you, it really striking that this is a patient safety issue because just reflecting on it. We work so hard to make sure that the patients don't receive the wrong drug by accident or they have the red tags that they wear for allergies. There's real systems in hospitals to make sure that those things are all done properly but actually Why aren't we thinking enough about how our medical records are, you know, protected? So it's quite striking. I don't really understand why, as doctors, we don't have that much awareness of that on the ground.
1: I think a huge issue is education and awareness and very much things like cybersecurity and IT. We always think this is not our problem. This is the IT department can sort this out and we're here to do the the kind of clinical part of the job. Mm. But actually looking at the whole kind of spectrum from like data security, but also the kind of cybersecurity aspect as well, um, at the end of the day, any healthcare professional interacting with the patient record, we're data custodians. Um, so we've got responsibilities to ensuring that data is kept safely and securely. Again, the whole patient safety issue from the cyber security part is making sure that we're operating in a way that's being put in a cyber hygiene way. So making sure that we're not sharing passwords or we're not sharing smart cards. We're not leaving our computer terminals logged in. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly from the whole working from home um, bit now, it's actually how are people operating in their own homes as well. So it's again, are you leaving any data unsecured? Um, are you making sure that you're logging into a kind of secure Wi-Fi network? So it's all of these little things mm. um, that help protect that data side of things. And we look at the kind of bigger ambition for healthcare technologies and data and actually one of the, the big ambitions is to ensure that patients also have access to their healthcare records. That's going to bring another um, security issue as well to it. So it's thinking ahead about that as well. And healthcare is very different from other critical sectors. So, for example, in banking, you absolutely minimise the number of people that can go into any kind of banking record. Um, whereas in healthcare, you can't do that because actually you need lots of different um, professionals to be able to access a patient's record. Yeah.
0: You also mentioned some of the other work which you've done, which I actually don't know that much about, but it's really interesting, around the idea of the value of NHS data. It's so incredibly useful and it shouldn't just be given for free. Can you tell us a little bit about it? We've been working on this for the past like, two years or so. Um, and
1: at the beginning, it was very much it was a bit of a pet project thinking, oh, what is the value of the NHS data asset? Um, and is there any way to work this out? So we had lots of things with economists, actuaries, um, investment um experts, but it is very difficult to put any kind of ascribe any value to the NHS data as an asset. But what we do know is that actually we have some of the best data there is. And if you think of the continuum of healthcare in the NHS, that yes, it is fragmented from primary, secondary and social care but actually we've got some amazing data sets and the fact that we have got a single patient identifier in terms of an NHS number and the kind of the the, the great data that we do collect and you see some of the kind of brilliant end results so such as the work that they did at Moorfields um, and their early detection work for ocular problems and um, using their brilliant data set of um, images there. So it's looking at the opportunities there, and absolutely, what you, that this data holds a great amount of value. It is being used by researchers. It's used by pharma companies. It's used by the NHS itself. Actually, what else can you do with this data that would bring value back to the healthcare system, but also to the UK yeah. as a whole? By value, we mean either it improves the health and wellbeing of people or that it brings a monetary value to it as well. And that's not to say, let's sell off all the NHS data to the highest bidder. It's got to be done in a very safe and ethical way and one that engenders trust in the wider population. And we know from past failures that actually this is a big issue of trust and whether people believe that it's a good thing to do or not. So I think that's very much top priority is making sure that there's good public communication public understands what we're doing with the data and there are safeguards in place before we do anything else. But then actually looking at the opportunities to see what else can you do to improve the quality of the data, how you can actually work with commercial companies and what are the kind of different value-sharing Um, models that you can ascribe um, and actually looking to see what's happening in the wider NHS as well and because this is happening all the time but it's just actually what can you do in a way that is well defined we know the kind of different deals are happening um, and people can learn from each other as well Because you've got some bigger trusts who who have been doing this and they've got much better facilities in place they've got great data sets in place and they can they're you know much more advanced in terms of being able to work with commercial companies but then you've got other hospitals that haven't got that opportunity so it's trying to put people at an equal footing as well
0: i was interested that you said that data is an asset but could you not also think that data is also a liability because if you don't protect it and it's getting hacked and all of this then it has the, sort of both ends of that On the balance sheet?
1: Yeah, that's very much where the infrastructure um, piece comes in place. And I think there's now, since WannaCry has happened, NHS Digital and uh, more recently NHSX have um, put in place a lot more programs um, to ensure that all healthcare organizations can start um, improving their cybersecurity provision. We've always had lots of data. You can probably remember doing uh, many uh, audits, healthcare audits as a junior doctor. So even things like that, that's going to say as a junior doctor in respiratory, we did national audits and the data went to the British Thoracic Society. But what actually happens to that data after? Other than a report to that individual hospital. But actually, if you can use that in a better way, you could do so much more with that one data set, let alone NHS Digital has 312 national data sets or along those lines. We don't have the capabilities in the NHS to do um, the kind of advanced um, analytics or using the AI machine learning techniques to see what else you can pull out from that data. And it's working with bigger organisations to see if there is anything in terms of improving healthcare outcomes, in terms of being able to service delivery so I think there's so much more that can be done but it's finding the right opportunities but also making sure that we're not disadvantaging the NHS by not getting a fair financial return.
0: You mentioned a little Dazzy before who of course is very well known to everybody who's been in London and UK healthcare for many years does he still play an active role in the institute and does it embody a lot of his vision?
1: Absolutely. So, Lord Arsie is one of the co directors of the Institute and he's really made it what it is now. we've also got David Nabarro, who is also one of the co directors, and you may have heard of him. He's one of the WHO special envoys for COVID. So, we're very lucky to have him at the Institute as well. Ara has always been a great fan of innovation technology. So, certainly for the digital health of things, it's been brilliant to have um, that kind of support, but really, It does very much bring in a lot of his vision to it as well. But certainly, I think across the Institute with lots of different work um, with the patient safety side of things and more global angle and innovation, but also the kind of design side of things as well. So it's bringing all of that together. And it's quite a fun place to work when you get to do lots of exciting things.
0: So whenever I'm on LinkedIn, I always see posts saying that you're recently published in Nature Diddle. Digital Medicine or the Lancet Digital Health. So it seems that you're publishing all the time. That's incredible. Well done. We know that publishing is not easy and it's a really long road. And I was wondering why there's this sort of rise in the big journals all doing these digital health sections and what the rationale is behind that. Also, I guess whether you have any tips for people who might be looking to be published in the digital health sections of these very large journals. A lot of the
1: work that we're doing in healthcare is now digitized and there's lots of kind of new opportunities coming along, there's lots of different technologies being explored and implemented, and there needs to be outlet for you know people to be able to share that information. And certainly there's um the Lancet Nature Digital Health, then there's a journal of medical internet research and in uh, the us they've got the new england journal catalyst um, and which is also their innovation type um, journal we end up publishing quite a lot is because we have a brilliant team and there's lots of work that goes into that lots of people in terms of advice i think if you've got a good idea there's There's never any harm in submitting it for consideration Mm. and lots of different ways that you can do it. And as as I said, it doesn't need to be an RCT. You can publish viewpoints, you can publish commentary papers as well. And obviously if you're doing a kind of bigger research project, then there are great journals to be published as well.
0: You talked about startups and smaller companies not really getting traction because NHS trusts are saying that where is the evidence? How should startups approach this whole thing around data gathering, developing partnerships, proof of concept? So I think very much it's thinking about
1: what who's the end user in your technology, and that should always be at the forefront of anybody who's thinking of a um, startup or mm. <laughs> um, thinking about it creating some kind of technology and a lot of times that you see there's a great concept but actually in reality is it going to make that end user's life any better so I think it's having that in the back of your mind to think how will the end user interact with it is it going to be useful and is there going to be any longevity um, in having that whether it is an app it's a technology or anything else but then also showing how will this work and actually having what are the outcomes that you claim or you want to show that improve and then thinking back in a very simplistic way to think what are the kind of things that you need to be able to demonstrate. How can you do this? Who can you work with and who can you approach? And I think it's quite an ascent field at the moment in terms of the evidence generation. Yeah. But I think really having that at the forefront to show that we do need to show that this works. It's very difficult to go direct a patient sometimes if it is a very clinical-based um, yeah. healthcare mm-hmm. technology. So I think that's where it gets a bit tricky. So some of the work that we're doing at the Institute is looking at other methodologies, for example, simulation as a tool um, to show that a technology potentially works. And this is some of the work that we've been doing quite recently. And we've had some great results in doing that and it's to see how we can build on that to make it more sophisticated in terms of trial methodologies and what other potential avenues there are to explore.
0: I know that you have your own startup, or even you're involved in two. Would you think you uh, could tell us a little bit about them?
1: Yeah, so one is called Syma, spelled P S Y M A, and that's very much delivering mental health therapy online. My practice in secondary care, when we refer um, people to uh, for CBT or talking therapies, we see this huge waiting list. Um, and access is always very difficult and actually some people don't want to go to have a face-to-face appointment and actually as we saw how things were turning online and then uh, three years ago the idea came to fruition um, and we had lots of discussions and actually put it down in paper and decided we're definitely going to do it and over the past few years it's been a challenging um, but very interesting experience and certainly now we have seen it grow and actually since Covid happened we've seen it grow even faster and we've had an increased number of clients through but actually just coming from a very medical background and then going into a business environment lots Mm -hmm. of lessons learned but super interesting and working with some great people to bring it to fruition as well.
0: What stage is it at? It sounds like you're well past the minimum viable product. Stage actually delivering service and getting paid for it.
1: Yeah, so we're delivering service, getting paid for it, we're showing the proof of concept is obviously there. Um, People want to use it and we've shown very good outcomes as well. It's showing good outcomes in terms of clinically, but also patient satisfaction as well. So that's always our client satisfaction. So that's always paramount as well. Um, But also the user experience for our therapists as well, because actually it's very hard to, it's not the same as doing a face-to-face appointment. And certainly through COVID, when we've been doing our remote consultations, it's actually a very different feel to be able to do an online consultation compared to face-to-face and not everyone's great at it. So actually you need to make sure you've got the, the best people that you can possibly have to be able to like deliver the best service so that's been key for us but certainly we're going for an early funding round and this has accelerated partly due to covid because we've seen an increased number we are now making a profit now the kind of the ambition is to grow as quickly and cautiously as possible what's the other startup that you mentioned as well so the other startup, um, again, the idea came from the work that we were doing at Imperial and that's very much looking at evidence generation in digital health. What we kind of deliver at Imperial is a very kind of academic proposition for clients that kind of come to us and this is more of a pragmatic and agile way. So running that with two of my colleagues um, that I'm working with, i was I previously worked with um, and also Professor Darcy as well. And again, that's very much advising companies on evidence generation in digital health, whether it's a startup or whether it's a multinational um, corporation.
0: I wanted to end with any advice you have for people who are thinking about you know, doing what you're doing and, and embarking on a portfolio career.
1: I think take the opportunity, say yes to everything and actually look at what you're really interested at and find people to support you and i think one of the the best things that i've had along this journey is having great mentors and having brilliant people who you can bounce ideas off and it's always having that support and i think one of the things that i've learned is making sure that you kind of pay that forward
0: thank you so much for coming on today so i really appreciate your time pleasure thank you very much Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Also head to the show notes to follow us on social media for all the latest content in health tech.